I really personally don't consider myself an artist. I consider myself a designer that uses art to communicate my ideas. I actually have much more respect for artists. An artist really has to be comfortable revealing themselves to the world in their, through their art. We as designers just provide a solution and we use art to communicate how that's going to be solved. We never really are exposing ourselves to the world. Have you ever thought about how you design a toothbrush or a table or even a pair of shoes? It, it almost sounds too simple, right? I mean, you know, toothbrush goes in your mouth and you scrub, 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 a table, it's got some legs, shoes go over your feet and maybe some laces. Or what about the pinnacle of all design projects, an automobile? Well, if you can design a toothbrush by taking into account your user, having some empathy for that user, and a good sense of aesthetics, then you can have the illustrious title of an industrial designer. A career that, to be honest, is probably one of the coolest design-related careers out there. I'm your host, Bobby Brill, and in this episode of Creative Mind, I talk with Antonio Borja, a former creative designer at General Motors, a former student here at the Academy of Art University, and now, of course, the director of the School of Industrial Design. And after, of course, we hear about his origin story, we dive deep into what type of thinking goes on in the head of an industrial designer. And in many of the past podcast episodes, we have seen where you start out in life is not always where you end up. And Antonio's path from Mexico to Detroit is a great story, so please do stick around. But a few things before we get into it. Please check out our new Facebook page at, of course, facebook.com slash Podcast, where we will be bringing you more videos, images, and talks with all of our past and future guests, including a great six-part documentary series that follows a semester-long collaboration with the School of Industrial Design and Subaru. So check that out as well. And as always, please hit subscribe on whatever device you're listening to so you never miss an episode of Creative Mind. Now, here's Antonio Borja. How does your story start going from Mexico to the U.S.? What was that like for you as a kid? I was fortunate. We grew up in a ranch, and our family also had a banana and a mango plantation. So we're from the very tropical region in, uh, in Mexico. So, I mean, as a kid, I mean, I, you can find me running around amongst the cows. You can find my Doberman with me at my side, my parrot on my shoulder. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it's a, basically, yeah. So, I mean, I, I got into, I, I would say I got into a lot of trouble because I was very curious about everything pretty much. And But what a place um, to get in trouble to. That's awesome. Like for, to give you an example, I mean, we had uh, the canals that'd be on the hills, hillside for water for the banana plantations and the mango plantations. We're kids, so water slide, right? Oh, of course. You jump on there. <laughs> Parents weren't too happy about it, but, you know, uh, for us and, and my cousins, I mean, that was, that was fun. I mean, we were able to, again, pretty much explore nature, and, and, you know, there wasn't really anything to stop us. We had, my dog was my guardian, pretty much, uh, you know, but obviously I had to let my mom know where I was at. But I would say that that freedom to roam is what kind of lent it towards my natural curiosity towards things because it's like, okay, I wonder what's over there. Like, what is, what makes this work? Or like, how does this come together? And, and so, you know, like I said, I think I was really fortunate in that. And then, you know, my, my father and my, and my mom both immigrated and I immigrated with them as well to LA. And once I was in LA, I remember it was like a big culture shock for me because I mean, one of the first things was like being served cold milk. And I okay. was like, what is this about? Why is it cold? <laughs> like, it's supposed to be warm. Right? <laughs> and they're like, no, it's, it's you know, store-bought milk. And, like, I, I remember it. I, and to this day, I still really don't like milk unless it's steamed. <laughs> it's funny. My, my brother-in-law is like that. He's from India. And, like, I was at his house, and he was pouring milk on his cereal and then put it in the microwave. Yeah. And he, he caught me looking, and he goes... I didn't grow up on cold milk. It, it's, it's weird. So, yeah. So that was one of those things where it was like, okay. And then all of a sudden, obviously, you know, I get introduced to a whole different lifestyle in the sense that, you know, there's cars around me where before there's horses and, and cows. And I mean, we had cars as well, too. But it was LA is, is it a concrete was, jungle. Exactly. Exactly. It was Where in LA were you, where did you start? When we first moved, we lived pretty much in South Central LA. Okay. I went to school in Wattsford Elementary School, okay. which is right off of MLK. Yeah, right by the Watts Towers there. Yeah. Okay. So it was, you know, uh, as a kid, you know, we 
we had a lot of fun. I remember one of the classes, one of my favorite classes that we had is where, you know, basically back then in the L.A. district, everyone, I think everyone got an IQ test. And that's what allowed you to get placed in whatever classes you were going to be in. And so it was cool. You know, we got to we got to get placed in, in a class where we had we were like the one of the only classes that had all Macs. Oh, wow. So we had a Mac lab, you know, and we would we'd play around on, on our Macs. And then we also that was the first time I got introduced to electronics and how to like make your own devices pretty much. And we had and to make this a, is at LAUSD. Yeah, this, this is, is regular LA public school. OK, yeah. OK. And basically we had a bunch of radio kits and, you know, you had to wind the little crystal, crystal kits. <laughs> yeah. Correctly. Yeah. And we're over there, you know, hooking it up to the fence, trying to get the boost the signal as well, too, for, you know, with our antenna. And so, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think when I moved here and I got exposed to that, I mean, it definitely, curiosity was already there, but this just kind of like took it to another level. I mean, every toy that I got, you know, it was like I would play with it for about five, 10 minutes. And then my curiosity got the best of me. It's like, okay, how does this thing really work? And that's where I would start taking things apart. And luckily, I was able to put most of them back together and get them to work again, <laughs> which is why, you know, at first, you know, my mom would always say, like, why are you breaking all the toys we buy? I'm like, I'm not breaking. I'm just trying to find out how it works, you know. Or well, like, well, what was the reason for moving from, from Mexico and then into South Central L.A.? Basically, my, my dad wanted us to, to live in the States. Okay. My, my mom, all her family is in Mexico. Most of them are still in Mexico, but we do have a few you uh, aunts ranch? and uncles. Uh, yeah, it's still part of the family. Oh, wow. Yeah. And again, it's, uh, it's now, you know, part of our extended cousins since they're the ones that are down there and they, okay. they still run the, the land. And they also have a plastics uh, company in Mexico City as well. Oh, OK. So that, that was another thing that kind of introduced me to, like, making things, you know, yeah. it's like the family business was to make plastic goods. Uh, and so that's something that, you know, I was around that. So you, were, you were prototyping long before you knew you were prototyping. <laughs> Correct. Pretty much. Yeah. I didn't know it. Yeah. So for me, like I said, it was one of those things where, um, you know, my dad's like, you know, there's just going to be better opportunities for my son to, to grow up in the States. And how was that? Because I know I know Watts has its own vision of what people think Watts is like. How was it growing up in Watts? I mean, it's a little rough and tumble. It was. It was. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I was there until pretty much the end of fourth grade. I was fortunate in the sense that I made friends with everyone. Mm-hmm. So I really didn't, you know, I had, you know, there, you definitely had like the, the gangs and all that stuff going on. But my dad did a good job. I mean, he, his business took off. He's always been an entrepreneur. His business started taking off and we moved to Glendale you know, within a year and a half. Okay. And so then things got better, but still, you know, you still have the both sides. But for me, I just learned from an early age, like I'm not going to associate myself with, you know, being part of one group or another group on myself. And then, you know, people who like to succeed and like what I do are going to come around me and I'm going to go around people that I, you know, want to be like as well too. So I quickly learned how to like create a nice little social network around myself of a group of friends that, I knew had ambitions to just to be more than worth what they were currently. Were they were they doing some of the the design or some of the the same curiosity bent that you had as a kid? Yeah, I think the majority of them were really creative kids. I mean, I think kids are just naturally inquisitive, right? Of looking at things and and want, trying to understand how things work. I know for me, art was something that was really big, um, just because. We had like pottery classes, you know, we would always be painting and whatnot. Quite frankly, I wasn't very good at it because for me, I was, you know, my my mom's focus was more, you're going to be really good at math, you're going to be really good at <laughs> physics, things are going to work out, right? <laughs> That's all you need in life. Exactly. You'll be good. Yeah, I'll be good. And um, so art for me was just more always like an outlet, like just a creative outlet. Like this is a lot of fun, you know. I never really saw it as, as work or homework per se, you know, okay. I just did it because I want to create this cool thing. So I need all these things and I just make it happen. Where for like homework, like math and, and physics and, you know, biology and all that stuff, it was, it was like, okay, this is just homework. I need to, need to get good at it. Luckily, math, I was something that it was just natural. I mean, all our family, I mean, one of my cousins is a mathematician. So it was just, it just made sense to me. It just was just in logical. The DNA. Yeah. And okay. it was just like where everyone else would struggle with them. Like, why are they having so much problem with this? 
It's just logical. It's this and this. <laughs> Variables, guys, solve for them. You'll be good. Um, so, but, you know, it was nothing that ever interests me. But I think a lot of my counselors would see that. And that was one of the main reasons why initially when I, you know, when I was in high school and then starting to transition into like looking, what am I going to do? What is there for me to do? Like, I, I love tinkering with stuff. I like art. But most of them would look at my grades and say, like, you know, you can be an engineer. My mom would make me take summer classes at Los Milanos Community College. This is when we moved up to the Bay Area here to Pittsburgh. And so I would take summer, uh, I would take uh, math classes in the summer oh my to gosh. get ahead. Oh, man. So, you know, as a sophomore, I was taking calculus. So she was really, really pushing you. Yeah, I mean, she to, just said, to, you know, this to, is where you're going to be. Like, this is what the family's good at, <laughs> pretty much. And, and so, yeah, so, you know, for me, it was... I was going to go down that path of being an engineer, mechanical engineering. Typically, anytime you tell anyone that, hey, I like cars or I like making things, like, yeah. oh, you're going to be a mechanical, mechanical engineer. engineer. That's yeah. it. And so, yeah, so that was, that, that was really the, the big push there in the sense that, you know, I, I think, again, at an early age, I was really exposed to a lot of these classes where we had to make things ourselves. And I really, I really have a lot of, you know, good memories looking back at that time because, you know, we would work together as a team to get our radios to work or to get our little, you know, trinkets of whatever we were making, little solar panels. I think on one of them we were making like little simple solar pa- uh, solar panel or solar powered uh, cars, you know. Oh my goodness. Like, you were really, I mean, you were doing full on design, yeah, engineering. Mean, it was just, but again, for kids, you don't really think of it as that. Yeah, it's just, it's, you're it's making a, a thing, you're, you're yeah. making it move. <laughs> and so basically... You know, getting exposed to that, I think it's what would really like, you know, open up my my mind to saying like, hey, this actually can be something that I would want to do. And it doesn't feel like work. Was there a car culture thing going on or was was that something for for you? Yeah, in L.A. And even when I was in the ranch, I mean, my mom would always tell me it was like every time any of my uncles came to visit or any of my aunts would come to visit. They would always know to bring little Tonito, which is what they call me affectionately, a car. Okay. They would always bring me a car model. Okay. And because they knew that that's what I loved. So, you know, even though, like I said, I was surrounded by horses and all these animals in the ranch, you know, I, I was always exposed to cars. And, and it was something that I, you know, I, that's what I love to play with. What was the car? What was your favorite uh, model car? What was the one you? I think when I was a kid, I, I rem- the one that I remember the most is a yellow C4 Corvette that I got. Okay. It was it was a remote control one, and it was just like I was over the moon because it had the pop up lights. Oh wow! So it was something that I was just like <laughs> I was completely smitten when I got it, and I was like, when you graduated high school, then what was the the goal? So your mom's telling you, okay, you're gonna be a mechanical engineer. You're thinking mechanical engineer. Well, not only my mom, I think it was also counselors, because a lot of counselors just don't, they don't really know a lot about art and design. You know, it's always seen as like a auxiliary field that it just exists, but no one really knows what, right, what yeah. happens. Upon graduating, you know, I enrolled in, uh, in DVC. My cousin did as well. He went to Cal Poly, mathematician. What's DVC? Diablo Valley College. Okay. This is in uh, Pleasant Hill. And basically, so I enrolled in junior college, you know, I try to get all my two-year classes out of the way, all the general ed stuff out of the way. You know, I met with the counselors there too and their and their advisors and I would tell them like, yeah, I want to design cars. That's what I want to do for a living. It's like, okay, yeah, you're going to be a mechanical engineer. That's what they do. It's like, all right, great. That's made sense. That, that's but the then only I'm in drafting classes and I'm like, I don't want to draft anything for like hours on end. Like this is not, this is boring to me. This is repetitive work. Nothing against people that draft. It just wasn't my wasn't your thing. my passion. Yeah, I was more into like I want to create and define what the vehicle is going to do, how it's going to look, how it's going to function. But again, I had no clue that there was a field. And then I actually happened to run across a brochure of industrial design, and that's where I was like, "That's what I want to do. <laughs> I want to be an industrial designer. I want to be a car designer." Because yeah, industrial design. I mean. I've worked tangentially with you in your department for a couple of years now, and every time you see somebody doing industrial design, it's like, I mean, your head explodes. It's like, oh, this is everything. This is literally every skill set an artist can have. It's all the math, all the design, all of the pretty, all of the functionality, all of the cool in one thing. I mean, I'm jealous when I go to industrial design (laughs) because it's like, oh, they get to do massive machines and make really cool things. Yeah, one, and like I said, once I realized like this field existed, there was like, okay, 
that's what I want to do. And I, you know, quickly asked my advisors, like, okay, what are, what are some of the industrial design programs around here? And, you know, they mentioned San Jose State, Art Center, Academy of Art. And my mom really just wanted, and I also really just wanted to stay close to home too. So, you know, I, I came to the Academy. I remember I took one class because at first I wanted to see mm-hmm. if I was going to like it because, you know, it still was kind of like... Mixed up. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I'm super excited about it, but I'm like, I don't want the excitement to get the best of me. I want to make sure that this is going to be right. I still remember my first class. It was, um, I took a uh, development of form class and it was just, yeah, this is where I belong. In that development of form class, what was that light bulb moment for you? I think that the, the first time that I got to see how I could design something and sketch it out and then within the same day make a prototype of it and then have a functional product by the end of the day. And it was like this idea just came from something that I just sketched. It was just something here. I brought it to paper and then I brought it to life. I thought there was something really powerful about that. It's like I'm getting to create products for people. Like this is really cool. This, 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 it's going straight from your head into the, the world yeah. in a day. And then I get to, you know, showcase it to my friends, my, my classmates and whatnot. They give me feedback on it. We make changes to it and we make it better and we improve it. It's like, wow, like this is never ending fun. It's like you're going to be in the sandbox. You're going to make cool castles. You're going to tear them down and make some more new ones the next day. And it's like it just doesn't stop. Right. Because if you think about it, I mean, we design products. But as you know, perfection is still elusive. We design these great products. They're perfect for the time. But as, as people evolve, as time, you know, as time goes on, the needs and the wants become different. So things need to be redesigned. You know, what we felt was the greatest thing, you know, for consumer electronics, for example, what was the best phone last year is now old news within right. six months. Car design is kind of similar as well, too. You know, the, for the, the next model year or four years, you know, every four years, usually you have a major facelift. And it's like, OK, now this car that which once seemed to be like the perfect, you know, resemblance or the perfect personification of the brand seem like you couldn't top that. Now it becomes, you know, obsolete, not obsolete, but definitely it becomes a statement of what that brand was at that point in time. What is it? The, the Honda, the Hyundai accent or the, what was it? Or the Aztec? Is that, one? that was the Pontiac, the Pontiac Aztec. Aztec. Yeah. <laughs> the one so interesting story about that though, because when I, so when I, we're fast forwarding here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But when I, I joined GM, that was one of the projects I had asked about. I was like, you know, so like what, what was the story behind the Pontiac Aztec, you know? And Nick, you ask it, not because you're poking fun, but you just kind of want yeah, to know. Yeah, how, how did that happen? And one of the things that, you know, the designers told us is like, well, that was our first attempt at just doing everything digital and not having clay. And there's a reason why <laughs> yeah. it looks great on rendering to looks great on sketches. But when we saw it in real life, it wasn't really translating to what we saw on there. And so that's quickly, they realized like, hey, you know, like as much as we like this new process of creating everything digitally and just printing or not printing it out, but like, you know, manufacturing from data, we still need the hand to touch the surface and sure. to finesse the surfaces and to see them and one to once go and make adjustments to them then. But that was one of the things that at least that was one of the things that I was told and I and it made a lot of sense. Like, okay, I can see that because I'm like, the sketches of it were always pretty they looked pretty good, you know, and the concept the concept honestly it was quite quite forward of its time. I mean, the fact that it's a multi use vehicle, I mean, this is before, you know, crossovers were at right. their craze that they are today. The fact that you can, you know, build your tent out from the back when the the cargo gate was open and all that. It had a lot of really cool features of like, you know, being able to wash out the interior and all that stuff. So a lot of really cool functional things that were in the design. Yeah, it's funny. As I I mentioned, it is a a, a laughing point. And, you know, we'll talk about that later. Subaru, you know, I'm remembering some of that stuff from Subaru. It's like, hey, maybe that's going to be the car of the future that has these living spaces built into it and, and different ideas. So it's kind of. Yeah. And I, and I think again, you know, and that's where, you know, you'll see that a lot of companies typically they're, they're hesitant to introduce too many new variables at the same time. You can push it too far and the public's just not ready for that. So a lot of times you have to put intermediate models or like, you know, stepping stones. So that way you can adjust <laughs> Educate people. Exactly. Okay. I mean, it's not, I mean, we saw the same thing happen with the uh, with the iPhone, right? Yeah. First iPhone had a bunch of skewphrisms in its design, so you know your notepad looked like an actual little notepad. Yeah. The timer looked like a, a timer. Yeah. yeah. You know the microphone, and now it's just the 
you know, the actual WAV or wave signal on 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 the uh, recording there. So those are things that if they would have done that right away, people would have been taking it back. Like, what is this thing? You know, this is an alien foreign thing. You so know? the Tesla truck may be the coolest thing ever in 15 years. <laughs> you know what? I mean, that was, that was, uh, so we, I mean, I was down in LA when it got unveiled and, uh, you know, that was a big discussion that we had. I mean, I th again, I think when you look at industrial design and what we teach our students to do, which is have empathy for who you're designing for. So what are their wants? What are their needs? Where are they going to be their nice to haves? Also have empathy for society. Like what, what is, what can this vehicle be and how is it going to exist around, you know, other vehicles and how is it going to live in, in, in a day-to-day -day environment, you know? The next thing is we say, you know, you have to make sure that it's also logical. It has to make sense. So you have empathy, you have logic. Those two things are what sets up your project because empathy is, again, understanding who the user is, who is going to be designed for. The logic is making sure that the technology is there, the price points make sense, the sustainability makes sense, you know, the products, the, the actual materials that you're using make sense for the application that you're trying to do. And then, and then pretty much the next thing that sits on top of that, I'm drawing a vastly simplified diagram here. <laughs> and then what sits on top of that is aesthetics, right? So aesthetics is what comes in and makes people want it, makes people identify it with the brand. It's got to be cool, but also just, you know, we have different brands because different people want to project you know, themselves in different ways. So that's one of the main reasons we have multiple brands. And, you know, most conglomerates usually have three or four brands under their umbrella that they control. And it's for that reason. And so basically, once we have those things where the intersection of those three elements intersect, that's where you're going to have your design. You mentioned empathy. And, you know, pretty much everyone we've talked to so far has said that same thing. Chuck Pyle talked about in his illustration career that if you're illustrating, you need to illustrate with empathy or you're telling a story that people can empathize with. Um, we had some other designers talk about always having empathy in what they were doing. And that, to me, is not something I often think about when I'm thinking about an artist, that almost that, that psychological connection with people. And how important is that in you know, industrial design, when you're designing a toothbrush or a car or something like that? I think now the way we really look at designing things is we really try to ask ourselves, okay, what, what's the main goal that we're trying to accomplish here? So if we do a study of a day in the life of a certain person, like this is what they do, they get up in the morning, they do X, Y, Z. Then at that point, we look at this is their day today. Where are their pay points, pain points that we can remove from their life okay. and make their lives better. Because this is, I mean, at the end of the day, that's our goal as industrial designers is to make life better for everyone. Make, make, life, make life painless. As painless as it can be, at least. And, you know, as you know, you pretty much from your, actually, from the point you go to bed, beds are also most of the time designed as well, to the toothbrush, and to your cell phone, your computer, your sneakers. All that stuff is designed by industrial designers. Right. And so basically for us, it's like, okay, well, let's look at their, their lifestyle. Let's look at their a day in the life of the week, of the weekend, of vacation time, of, you know, them having a special getaway with their friends and family, right? We look at those things and we ask ourselves, what experience, what new experience can we create to make people's lives better? And that's how we're designing most products today. We don't even take into consideration really just the hardware or just the software. They're both in unison being worked on. And that's, again, you design the experience first, and then you design all the assets that are necessary to make that experience happen. And I know we're going to talk about cars predominantly, but that is everything industrial designers. Correct. Right? Yeah. I mean, because in, in, our, in our department, I mean, and this is kind of one of the things that we've been talking about recently is this. We say industrial design and people just don't get it at first because they're like, what? You're in a factory designing stuff? Like, no. <laughs> no we got a team, team of robots working around the block. <laughs> we just sit there and push buttons. Yeah. And it's like, no, I mean, the only reason the word industrial is in there is because we tend to mass produce the ideas that we come up with so that they make an impact in people's lives. Yeah. Right. If I make a one off and it's a wonderful thing, but I can't 
it's not a democratic product because I can't share it with the rest of the world. I'm not going to, I'm going to make a change in one person's life and that's going to be great. But if I have the opportunity to change millions of people's lives, that's going to be much more impactful. And that's where the word industrial comes from. And the fact that our ideas have to be mass produced okay. and there, and that's, it's worldly thinking as opposed to fine art gallery thinking. Correct. Okay. And so in, within our umbrella, I mean, our students can study everything from furniture design to toy design to product design. And product design can include footwear design, personal electronics, consumer electronics, medical equipment. And then we also have transportation as well. So it's a really wide gamut of areas that students can go into and make, a, make an impact on the world. I have to say this because, again, all the time that I go over there and, and, and work with you guys and see the students, it does affect more of my decision-making process every day. Because my wife and I were shopping for a car end of last year, and I had a Chevy Cruze. Nice car. We bought it new, except it had a very massive design flaw in my, in my thinking. So the way I got in, I banged my shin in the same spot once a week. And immediately, I didn't care what the car was. I didn't care how much it cost when we got a new one. I was like, if I bang my shin, I'm not getting into this car. We are getting back in our car and we're driving to another yeah. dealership. And three times, I won't mention the cars we didn't get, but they were all high end because we ended up getting an Audi. But all the car, these luxury cars we got into, I was like, boom, nope, we're done. I physically am not going to enjoy this car. I just need to walk away. Yeah. And that's the reason why we have multiple brands because, you know, we don't, we can't, we have yet to design the right answer for everyone. So with that, I mean, like what I would tell you, a cool story about that is we went to the LA Auto Show this last, um, this last fall and the CA team was there, uh, Vlad and Tristan. Vlad uh, did the exterior of the new Corvette, the C8, and Tristan did the interior. And that was one of the things that they had discussed about, you know, they... They reinforced the center beam of that car so that ingress and egress was a lot easier, being that, you know, most of the time, a lot of the Corvette clientele tends to be older, even though this car is designed to appeal to a younger clientele. But it's something that it was cool to see that even though in this really high-end supercar, like, they're still paying attention to the human component. The person who's actually going to be buying right. it, as opposed to, right. you know, yeah. that, that user study is a little skewed, a little older, a little more mature. That was just one thing that they did to respect their current customer. Mm. But if you look at the styling and the, now that it's a mid-engine everything, they did everything else to attract younger clientele yeah. towards the brand. And I think they're going to be successful with it. You come to the academy here and you focus primarily on, on industrial design. Is it, are you working on transportation or where is your focus in industrial design at that point? All I ever wanted to do was just work on cars, design cars. Quite frankly, not even work on them. I, I enjoy driving them more than working on them. I changed transmissions and all that fun <laughs> stuff too because I wanted it to go faster. <laughs> Not necessarily because I was like, you know what? I want to get dirty this weekend <laughs> and wrench on my car. It was more like, okay, what do I need to make it go fast? And this is what needs to happen. And, you know, I ordered a custom engine from, it was Central Mustangs back then in, uh, in Tehachapi, California. Crate Motor shows up to my to my front yard. My mom's like, why is there a big rig parked in front of our house? <laughs> so, oh, my motor just came. Uh, Your what? Exactly. <laughs> and so, you know... Again, it was just something that I, I've always enjoyed and, you know, going out and, and, and driving my cars and, and having a lot of fun with them. And so anytime I ran across into anything that I felt was going to make that experience better, I would go out and make it happen. So there you go. There's a little bit of the origin story of Antonio Borja, the director of the School of Industrial Design here at the Academy of Art University. Tomorrow, we'll delve deeper into what it means to be an industrial designer, what that actual term means. We're gonna talk more about cars, more about design, more about being a working artist and what happens after you graduate. So definitely check out the next episode and please check out our new Facebook page at facebook.com slash creativemindpodcast for all the cool videos, links, and past podcast information and all of our future guests. And most importantly, please hit subscribe on whatever device you're listening to. And thank you again for listening to Creative Mind. Well, that's the magical thing about spray paint. 
I can actually paint a 30 foot by 60 foot building faster than I could paint a small nine by 12 canvas. I really could. I don't know, there's something about murals and doing something that large scale that it's so much more freeing than being in a little canvas. It's so tight. That seems a lot more stressful to me than to paint on a wall. That was artist and muralist Michelle Guerrero. Michelle has one of those great stories in that she graduated from the academy with a degree in illustration, with the emphasis on, you know, working in small format, maybe even children's books. But then she pivoted and went big, super big, sides of buildings, billboards in Times Square big. Hi, I'm Bobby Brill, and on this episode of Creative Mind, Michelle's going to walk us through her career and give us a peek in how the mural business works. And be sure to check out her Instagram page at MRBABBY so you can see all the work that she's doing. And don't forget to please hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to so you never miss an episode of Creative Mind. Now here's our conversation with Michelle Guerrero. How did the mural business come about if you studied illustration? Because most people when they think illustration, they're thinking tiny, small, four by six little images. How did the world of painting entire buildings come about for you as a business? The reason why I chose illustration was the appeal of the structure versus the fine art department. I feel like illustration was just more assignment based, I guess. I sort of like that just because I feel like with what I do too, you know, it's a lot of research and like learning your client. And with the with the mural thing, I, it's always intrigued me, but I just, I honestly never thought that I would be able to figure out how to do it. It just seemed like this whole other world that, that I, I knew nothing about. And so I was intimidated by it. You're intimidated by it? Yeah. But you decided to go and do it? Yeah, I just went for it. <laughs> what, what was the appeal to it? What was the appeal to going giant? I think I always wanted to. I think it was something that I was always interested in and was fascinated by. I, I don't really know the moment that I made that transition, but it just called me. It called me and so I went. <laughs> I went with it. <laughs> you just went with it? How did you begin working in murals? How did you get started into that world? When I graduated, I was working as a teacher and I was also doing like lift and a bunch of like little side jobs. I was also doing my art, but it wasn't really paying my bills. It was bringing in a little bit of money, but not so much with my canvas work. And I just kind of like was plotting, like, how am I going to make this a full-time thing? Like, how am I going to be able to like just do art? Because that's what I really wanted to do. That's, that's what I've always wanted to do. And so I thought to myself, okay, like, what if I start painting buildings, like, and I could get hired by businesses. And so with that, I kind of just pushed myself to go out there and figure out how to make that my business. And that's what I did. So what, what steps are that? Because you, if you didn't study murals in school, I, I'm guessing there's a slight difference in materials and a slight difference in where you start from illustration to murals. Where did you start with the murals? What was the first step for you? The first mural I painted was with brush. I just remember thinking like, wow, like this is crazy. Like how do people do this? This is going to take forever. This is going to take years. So I kind of thought to myself that it would be smart to at least like try to use aerosol. So I just bought a couple wood panels at Home Depot and like set them up outside and just practiced. It was really challenging at first. Like I just couldn't figure out at all. And I was about to give up, but I told myself, I was like, you know what, if I really want to do this, if I walk away today and don't get something that I sort of like, then I'm probably going to be intimidated and never come back to this medium. So I just sat there all day for hours. Finally, by the end of the day, I had something that looked like something. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> I, I, I have something. I could figure this out. This thing is a recognizable thing. <laughs> I, I've succeeded. Exactly. And then um, from there, I just, I don't know. I really liked it. The challenge was fun. And also like what spray paint does, it creates like these really pretty blends. And so I really liked that look and I just kind of wanted to explore it more. And so from there... I just kept practicing. And luckily there was this establishment that was called Writer's Block here in San Diego. I don't know if it's open anymore, but it has these walls and anyone's invited to come and you can paint the walls. It's just kind of like a place that people come and paint and then the next day somebody comes and paints over you. It's like not permanent, you know, but it was a perfect spot for me to practice. That's how I started. Eventually I got good enough where I started photographing 
the pieces that I would create. And that's how I got my whole start because then I would show those to businesses and tell the businesses that it was on a different business, even though it wasn't, you know, and that's how I started getting my gigs. Oh, wow. So So you went full enterprising entrepreneur. I'm going to kick down doors and become a muralist, whether I am or not right now. Right. Well, I was like, at least I'm going to try it. Like, I'm going to go for it. You know, that's awesome. I want to go back just a little bit, just, you know, because I think going from illustration, so I'm assuming you were doing brushwork and pen and ink and probably some digital to totally chucking it and going to spray paint. That has to be a pretty big learning curve or was it easy to get into spray paint for you? It was hard. At first, it was really hard for me to learn how to control the can and do like tiny little details. That part was really, really hard for me. But I don't know, like something about it felt right. I think like I was talking about, like the spray paint has just like these really beautiful blends and you can get them in one second versus like a brush where you have to like sit there and blend it out. I love that because <laughs> it just makes everything so much easier, you know? <laughs> so. I like how you say it's just easy. It's so easy and simple. You know, people just, spend I feel like it's like years doing this and you're like, eh. <laughs> I think just like the blends, like I almost feel like it's cheating because it's <laughs> so easy, you know, <laughs> you know, there is that history of graffiti and murals and kind of the, the conglomeration and, and meeting of the two worlds where everyone, oh, we don't like graffiti until it's amazing. And then it's like, oh, well, no, no, it's a mural now. Now it's something beautiful. Talk to me about some of those first mural projects you got. And then I actually want to, I want you to walk me through some of the, the bigger pieces you've got. Cause you know, now you're working with cities like the city of Chula Vista and you've got some stuff that have been out on Times Square with Samsung, but talk to me about some of those, those first little projects you got. What's the secret to getting a job as a muralist, even if it's, you know, your, your own business. In the beginning, I just felt lucky to get any business to let me paint. I would do a lot of work for trade originally. Like I would go to like a cell phone shop and have them like fix my broken screen and I would do a mural for them. For me, it was a win because I was like, this is awesome. Like I'm just like putting my stuff out there and I'm building my portfolio. It was a lot of that. It was a lot of walking around. It's interesting because I've always been such a reserved, very shy, not people like I don't put myself out there at all. And so it was weird to be that to have to transition into being that salesman, like business guy that knocked on your door being like, hi, do you want my services? Even at the time I was offering these services for free and people would just be like, no, no, we don't, we don't. And I learned then that rejection was a huge part of it. And once I got comfortable with rejection, it was easy for me. But yeah, a lot of my clients originally were just trade and strictly just to get that portfolio. While I started building that, people started noticing, and then I started getting slowly hired by businesses that would reach out to me, or, you know, I would reach out to them, and and that's how it started. Let's get into some of these projects you've done, because when somebody says, I was just throwing stuff up on walls and hoping for the best, the work is awesome. I mean, we're going to promote it as much as possible, and, and we want people to go to Mr. B Baby or at Mr. B Baby on Instagram to see all your cool stuff. And we'll talk about some of the other stuff that's up there, your characters. But with the murals, I mean, this is not easy work. Murals are very time consuming. We're talking a couple of days, weeks for some of these, or or are you just that fast? Well, that's the magical thing about spray paint. It is that fast. I can actually paint a 30 foot by 60 foot building faster than I could paint a small nine by 12 canvas. I really could. I don't know. There's something about murals and doing something that large scale that it's so much more freeing than being in a little canvas. It's so tight. That seems a lot more stressful to me than to paint on a wall. A giant piece piece that everybody can see no matter where they are. (laughs) You find less stressful? I don't know what it is, but that's how I feel about it. <laughs> well, that, well, that's awesome. I mean, that yeah, that explains you know the the breadth and depth of your work. So, so talk to me about working with somebody like the city of Chula Vista. So you're based in San Diego, uh, San Diego County, and LA County. So Chula Vista, uh, small, correct me for a small beachside community, or it, it's right by Tijuana. So but okay. it's 
there's a beach close by. <laughs> <laughs> it's California. So, yeah. <laughs> so small Southern California town, but still you're working with local government. How did you convince local government to let you do something that would be permanent, semi-permanent on a wall? Well, that actually came about in a weird way. I, I actually got an art call sent to me that the city of Chula Vista was looking for an artist. And just by like chance, I just like reached out to them and they invited me for like an interview. And the lady who interviewed me like ended up me and her, we just clicked, you know? And so after that, we started plotting on like ways to bring more art to the city of Chula Vista from there we decided to curate a project. I can't remember the name, but it was about basically about art history. And so I helped curate this project. I think there was 10 or 12 artists. What's different when you're discussing the idea of public art as opposed to private art or commissioner? What makes public art different for people and how do you pitch public art? Well, I think now murals are and like all that are becoming more accepted and like cities are wanting more of that and they want to be like involved in the arts. And so for me, I feel like art just brings like value to the community. It is something for the community versus, you know, like a little canvas that is like either for like a private client or whatever it may be. But when you do a mural, it's literally a gift to the community. Like everybody's going to see it. It's, it's a good time to be a muralist. Cities are really wanting that and they're really like, besides with the COVID thing, but they're starting to really like fund that and have the money for that and stuff. So it's been a good run. <laughs> and, and so talk to me a little bit about that Chula Vista piece. So you've got that big piece on a bike trail. Tell me a little bit about it. So the one thing that she wanted was for it to be centered around art history. And so I picked a bunch of artists and we all just kind of brainstormed and thought about like what genre we were going to go for. We tried to include as many genres as we, as we could. So we all kind of sat around and figured out like which ones were best. And that's how that came about. I will say that, you know, murals are definitely part of gentrification. I keep that in mind when I create my work. And that's why I'm very prideful about keeping my work cultural. I want to make sure that that's represented and to do my part to keep that alive. So I think that just be mindful, especially like in wh what community you're working in. I think that's very important. Sometimes you have to leave the ego out the door, you know, and sometimes I don't do chucho, you know, sometimes I just do things like strictly for the community that I'm working in and think about them and that and to help keep the culture alive and to have that element in the community to really have people feel connected back to their homeland or whatever, you know, so I, I always keep those things in mind. But as far as graffiti, that's like a whole other world. So my pitch for that is it's all like different masks. It's like primitive art. But the reason why I chose that piece is because I think it's interesting that in every culture, pretty much around the world, they all have like some sort of masks. And so I thought it would be cool to represent different cultures that live here in the city of Chula Vista and to put them all together on one wall and like, it just looks like it belongs together, it goes well together. The fact that we have like these masks and they all are similar. So it just kind of goes to show, you know, unity. Because you've got tribal masks, you've got Asian or Pan-Asian masks, you've got some of them African masks, and then... Uh... Mexican, there's, there's Filipino, there's all kinds of different ones. And so I just wanted to send a message of unity like how different we all are, but in the same sense, like how similar we are. And then you've got this kind of blue mask guy with a big red lip and a big red ears and a big red smile. So what is that? What, tell me about that. That one just represents me. I always have to <laughs> throw my little signature up there. That's Chucho, my character that I always paint. Chucho, this character you created, plays a pretty heavy role in a lot of your art. How did that come about? Honestly, I created him because I wanted, my sister and I went to a, a Society of Children's Book Illustrator convention. And at the time I was like preparing to get my little portfolio ready. I was brainstorming with my sister because we were thinking about writing a book because she's a published writer. We came up with the idea to do the popular Aesop fables, but to do this Latin twist to them. Originally, I started with Red Riding Hood, and that's when I created Chucho, and he was the wolf. 
now i don't know what he is but he's <laughs> he's got the the spirit of a wolf <laughs> <laughs> but this character is pretty prevalent in all of your work what does he represent to you so chicho is actually a piñata growing up i dealt with a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression and i went through a lot of dark phases in my life so with a piñata you know they're meant to be broken i always paint him I do a lot of pieces with him like broken but like with plants like kind of growing out of the cracks and it just sort of symbolizes that through brokenness comes growth like through all your bad experiences it's what makes you you and so Chucho is that for me <laughs> and you've got him now in doll form and clothing I mean he's really an icon what's uh, the plan for for Chucho My plan is to make a Chucho theme park <laughs> <laughs> Okay <laughs> But uh, we'll see how that goes. Okay. As you said, you know, you're doing a lot of Latin-themed work. How much of your Latin heritage plays a part in the work you're doing? A big part of it. And honestly, it started with... Originally, when I started drawing and stuff, I used to draw little characters inspired by people and situations that I would see. But I kind of stepped away from that because it was a little bit darker, too. But I, I honestly... Really? Yeah, it was it was pretty dark. <laughs> and then I kind of asked myself, where are you going with this? I I want to create art for people and I want to create something that people are going to want and that they're going to recognize and, you know, associate with. And so I just kind of looked around like my space where I lived and I was like, what do I like to surround myself with? And I realized I'm very into like the masks thing, Dia de los Muertos, all kinds of different like Mexican or Puerto Rican, just like cultural things. That's kind of where I got inspired. And I was like, I want to do something like that. That really represents me, my culture and what I really stand for, you know? And so that's how I kind of started going into that. I mean, you've got a, a pretty heavy, almost a folk art influence in what you're doing right. as opposed yeah. to mainstream artwork. Going back to in, in some of the murals you've got, you're now getting clients or you're now searching for clients. How does that work what are you doing when you're going out and getting a client are you looking at driving around looking at buildings are you reaching out to actual companies how does that look for you on the business side before you get creating what are you actually doing now the hard part of getting that check so there's definitely a lot of emailing that goes into it and there's definitely like the moments where i spot a wall where i'm like oh that's perfect and then i go in and pitch my idea. <laughs> but now actually it's been pretty great because I don't strictly rely on it, but a lot of people reach out to me now. <laughs> so it's nice. Um, it's a good spot to be in. Yeah. <laughs> but I still do, you know, my emailing, I find companies that I'm interested in, or I feel like our styles would kind of like go together and I reach out to them and, and pitch ideas. But every client is so different. There's always like a different story, which is what I love about being in realist. It's like, it's always different. There's always like something new. Give me some examples. What are some of those uh, client interactions you've had where you've just been like, what? You, you want me to do that? Or is it more of a collaboration? Well, there has been clients who asked me to do things that are completely like not aligned with my brand and what I do, which I find weird that they would reach out to me, you know, which I guess those are like, strange but for the most part i feel like nowadays my clients know what i do they know my style and most of them just either give me just the freedom to do whatever i want or they have like a couple key points that they want basically they help me in the design process by telling me their vision and then i make it into my style <laughs> okay so would that be something like you pointed out some of the projects you've done with some international brands like samsung how did that project come about? Is that playing off of your Latin heritage or was that something specific that they wanted? They actually reached out to me and then they told me that they were looking for artists for Hispanic Heritage Month to do a billboard design. And so it was pretty open-ended. Like I could design anything that I wanted that just represented me, I guess. So I ended up doing that piece for them. But it's been nice because I feel like most clients are just very open to to what I want, which is great. <laughs> that, that, that is great. That's awesome. Back up a little bit and talk a little bit about, you know, you're doing work that's very Latin themed. How do you work your heritage into your work? You go, I'm a Latin artist, or I'm a Latinx artist, or 
does it ebb and flow or how, how does that work? I will say this. I'm definitely the token Latinx artist because <laughs> I am who I am and I create what I create. So I get it, you know, but I just consider myself an artist. <laughs> okay. okay. You know, yeah. Because I, I, I know that's, 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 you know, coming from me who is not Latin going, so how do you represent the Latina person? Sounds I mean, really stupid, but how, how, you know, when you're. It works. It works. It works. It works in my favor too. You know, like Latinx History Month is always popping. <laughs> <laughs> so I always get my big clients around that time. So okay. my, okay, that works. Okay. Uh, that, makes, that makes sense. So where did the moniker Mr. B Baby come from? MRB. Michelle Ruby Brown, then baby. But to be honest, I will say this. I, I made an Instagram name and I didn't think anything when I was making it, but I was trying to paint murals and stuff. And there was like something in me, probably just from growing up and hearing what I heard, because I'd always wanted to paint murals. And I had friends who did not murals, but they did graffiti. I would always be like, hey, let me go paint with you guys. But they never wanted me to because... I was a girl and they just like had like some sort of opinion about that. I kind of made that name because I didn't want anyone to know I was a girl originally. Now that's a mistake. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy for people to know that I'm a girl. You know, it actually comes in handy because there's not a lot of women doing it. There's not a lot of women muralists? No, uh, it's male dominated for sure. Really? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So t talk to me then about growing up. What knew you growing up? What was the art influence you had that pushed you to go to art school and follow this dream? I feel like my taste has changed over time. The art that I used to like, I don't like much anymore. I mean, I respect it. I respect it, but it's just not my thing. But honestly, I think it was the one thing that I was like, not. I didn't even think I was good, to be honest. I just liked it. I really, really liked it. And I wanted to be good. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I chose that. And I was like, I'm going to figure it out. You know, that's what I want to do. Were you doing art at an early age or are you just one of those annoying people who got good all of a sudden where the rest of us struggled to not be good? Oh, no, I've always drawn and painted and I sucked really bad. <laughs> and I just kind of developed. I mean, even still now, I know I have a lot of growing to do. It's just with time and practice. But I think I was always into art, mainly because my mom was a single working mom. And so she would try to distract us <laughs> and give us little projects, you know, so she could handle her business. And it actually worked out because, you know, it made me really love to create and be a creative person. What were some of the influences you had? I mean, the, the style you have, we can see some influences, but what was some of those big artists for you that you looked at? Other than, you know, some of the graffiti art and muralists around, who were those people that, you know, laid a foundation for you? First and foremost, I'm really inspired by Charles Bragg, who is actually a San Francisco guy. I think he's still around, but he's the illustrator and he just paints like these whimsical worlds. I think that's my top guy for sure. But aside from that, I really like, it's not like one artist because it's kind of like a genre folk art Mexican folk art is like my biggest thing that inspires me and just like the masks and like the clay sculptural stuff I always wanted to be a sculptor to be honest <laughs> so so all that stuff fascinates me and inspires me a lot what was it about Charles Bragg that clicked mm -hmm. with you honestly I, I don't even know how to answer that but I, I guess there's just something about his stuff that's so like magical <laughs> I don't, I don't really know how to explain it, but I just love his stuff. And I think he's definitely worth looking into. He has that absurdist kind of almost surreal visual to it. that I can see some of the, the influence in your work because your work is definitely surreal. Was that on purpose or was it just something that kind of grew out of your time playing with it? I think I've always been into that sort of style. When I think art, I think of like to create my own... It's just more like fun for me, you know? So I like to create my own style and do little characters and be weird with it. Like the weirder, the better. <laughs> what was the appeal for you to go to art school? I really wanted to be a good artist and I thought that I sucked and I wanted to get better <laughs> and I wanted to do art as a living, but I wanted to figure out a way to do it. And I guess maybe I thought art school was going to give me the answer, which it, it didn't, but it definitely helped polish my skills for sure. But it, the answer I, I had to find on my own. <laughs> how did, so how did you do that? How did you find the answer on your own? Honestly, just because I wanted it so bad. 
I think I was just very determined to do that. I guess I, I came to a point in my life where I ended up in a really dark place. And then I had my daughter and I hadn't done anything really with my life. I had a degree, but I wasn't doing anything with it. And it just got to a point where I was like, you know what, if I'm going to do this art thing, I have to push it now. I have to do it now. Because if I don't, then it's never going to happen. And so I felt really pressured. Maybe it's because I was a mom, like to just figure it out like now. And and so I, I just went really hard. Like I just chased it. I chased it. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go. And if I fail, then at least I gave it my all. And so that was like a big thing in my head that I had. I felt like it was like do or die. And so <laughs> that's kind of why I went so heavy with it, I so guess. Then, well, let's talk about that. How do you balance being a parent and now a working artist? Because, you know, a lot of people, when they see, you know, you watch a movie about an artist, it's all just, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and everything's amazing. <laughs> and, you know, we're going to paint forever, and it's going to be amazing and easy, and all they want to do is paint. But now you have a little small person who needs your attention. How do you balance your work-life paradigm? Well, it's definitely not easy, <laughs> but I will say that that provides structure. So it's not that artist life, you know, where I'm just out, you know, doing my thing. I, I love that I have that to keep me in line. But I will say that I definitely am very thankful for my family because they've helped me when I travel for work and things like that. They're there to support me and my daughter. At first, they didn't see the vision at first, you know, but they're starting to, to grasp it. <laughs> So, but very thankful for, for my family. I don't think I could do it uh, without their help, for sure. Did having a child change your your style or change some of how you do your work? Honestly, I've always been like into that childlike thing. I will say that I feel like I'm still good <laughs> forever and for always. I don't know if it changed anything as far as my style goes, you know? So as a working artist, You've got murals, you're doing commissions and shows, you've got merch. How did you structure this world as, so that we can steal all your ideas and get some, or excuse me, get some guidance from you, <laughs> not steal all your ideas, but how did you set this up? Because I think that's the hardest part for so many of us as, okay, I'm a freelance artist, I've graduated school, I've got my portfolio under my arm, and now what? I would say first and foremost, get your portfolio together. That's number one. Get your resume and stuff together for in case you have to like email like a bigger client that asks for that. Normally they don't ask for that unless you're applying for like a city type of job. But definitely it's important to like have that stuff ready. And then I would definitely say aside from that to get your website up and running because your website really it's a hassle, or at least for me, it was because I didn't code it because it's Wix, Wix.com or whatever, but I had to format it by myself, which took literally like two weeks because I didn't know what I was doing. But once you get those things out of the way, feels like there's just like a weight off your shoulder. And those are like things that you need. That's the first thing that I would do. And once you get your website, then you could just upload, depending on what you want to do, you know, of course, but you could upload your, your paintings or, you know, if you want to make t-shirts or whatever you want to do. So let's talk about a little more about that mural world then. So if I want to do a mural, you know, I, I say I come to you and I'm going to do a collaboration. Like, okay, I've got an idea. I've never done a mural before. I've got a building. I've got a two-story building. I want to do one side of it. What are the things you're going to ask me that I need to know as a business owner if I want a mural? What do I need to think about? First some people don't require it, but I think if I was a business owner, I would want my artists to be insured. <laughs> Number two, you have to think about equipment. Is your building, are you able to get on that with a ladder or am I going to have to rent a scaffold? Am I going to have to rent a lift? Those are, you know, the top two things because then that obviously determines price because renting a lift is not cheap. So, you know, you have to add all that into your total cost. And so if I, if I bring you in, let's say, you know, I get a lift, I'm not going to ask you your price because I know the price is, you know, it's always something different for everybody, you know, because those, those big corporations, they can pay more and should. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they've got budget, you know, that, that's the hardest part. Uh, but I will ask you that if I'm a business owner and I come to you and I go, okay, great. So we're going to rent a lift. What should I expect to happen when you show up to do a mural? 
So first, my process is I buff the wall, one solid color, whatever my background color is going to be. There's two methods. I'll walk through the first one. And it's like a grid method. I don't use a projector or anything like that. But if I do a very large scale thing, the method that a lot of muralists use, and they pretty much draw like a bunch of little symbols all over the wall. And it looks like just out there. For me, I'm always like embarrassed when I do it because people are probably thinking like I'm like on drugs or something because it looks just like crazy. But that I use as a grid method. So I, I lay this out. I lay out all these little hatch marks and stuff. And then I take a picture. And then from there, I go on my Procreate or, you know, my Photoshop and I lay out my drawing, but I do it like a transparent, like, so you can kind of see behind it. That way I know exactly where to put my lines, if that makes sense. And so I'm able to know exactly where everything goes. And so I get my piece of chalk, sketch it out, and then bam, we're ready to paint. <laughs> okay. And, and then it's, you know, anywhere from a few days to a few weeks, depending on what we want to do. Yeah, I think like four days is the most I've ever spent on a mural. Oh, wow. And then for you as a muralist, is it a one-time fee or is there upkeep or is there retouching if somebody vandalizes it or something like that? Is that part of the business you have as well? My contract states <laughs> that, you know, that I will come back and fix any sort of damages or repairs, but it's not that is a different set of uh, negotiations That's yeah exactly okay. okay when you are pricing stuff out do people are people shocked at how much a mural costs because i know a lot of people say murals are a great business but is, is it a surprise for people or is it are you pretty busy honestly it just depends what i talk to like there's people who are definitely shocked and then there's people who i wish i would have told them more because they're like oh that's it <laughs> so, you know like it just depends I think the bottom, bottom, bottom is like to do a mural is like a grand, a thousand. And then it goes to like 30 grand for okay. experience. Yeah. So. Oh, wow. So, so when people say that this is a good business, this is a pretty good business if you have the talent to do it. If you have the talent, yes, of course you, you need talent, but I think it's like a business. You have to be like skilled in business. You have to be skilled at talking and selling and selling yourself. And I think that's the key. Because I've seen a lot of muralists get these amazing jobs in there. It's not always about skill. I hate to say it, but it's just about being a good businessman. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I, you know, I, we hate to poo-poo an artist, but I agree. I have seen some work and you're like, wow, somebody got paid for that? Yeah. And right. the art world is also very like who you know, unfortunately, I will say that. I mean, and not saying that you can't make those connections. It's like a tight knit thing. I don't know. But I try to stay in my own lane. I, I'm in my own world. I, I do my own thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me then about what's the five year plan, if there is such a thing for you? What What is the goal with either if it's with murals or with your brand? What is it that you are looking to put out there and to be known for? You know, it's funny when people ask me this because I feel like I want to do exactly what I'm doing now, except I just want to be making double <laughs> what I'm making now. And then the vision truly is to expand it. Like it sounds silly, but the business layout that I really like and look into is this company called Rip and Dip. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of them. I don't necessarily like their brand aesthetic but I like how they run things they have everything that you could think of like an ice cream truck they just pretty much have just branded the hell out of you know this little character and that's my plan I just want to keep putting him out there and I don't know how far it's going to take me but hopefully it'll be me riding a roller coaster themed where you know it's him <laughs> but we'll, see. we'll see in studying illustration and again now you're doing large-scale mural pieces totally different from what you studied, what held with you from the academy that you are still using or still utilizing? Were there any nuggets of wisdom, any gold there that you found that really has been pushing you through? Yeah, absolutely. And even though it is different, it's not that different. I feel like I still utilize all of the skills that I learned just on a larger scale. But I think, you know, the most important part was really you know, I was pushed out of my comfort zone and like made to do things that I typically wouldn't want to do that I found extremely boring, like still lives. I felt like it's like old people things, but those things are what really like helped push my skills and where I was able to understand form. And that's how I'm able to create my own world and my characters is by 
by understanding that by knowing things like how light hits hits objects and stuff those are definitely skills that I took away as well as just you know like I sharpened my drawing skills a lot and just drawing things that I didn't want to draw but it really did help and so you know for all the boring classes that I had to take I'm glad I was forced to do it (laughs) (laughs) that's what I'll say (laughs) what advice do you have for that little girl or boy that really likes art and likes drawing on a wall and playing around with crayons and and paint what advice can you give them as an actual working artist i would say if you want to pursue art find your voice find your unique voice and run with it and try not to get too sucked in and inspired by that's why you know i have a hard time answering like who inspires me because i try not to be too inspired by anyone because i want to create my own thing and i think that's why i've been able to get to the place that i'm at because nobody does what i do no one could you got to call me for what i do you know you can't call you know somebody else so that's what's helped me move along by just being unique doing it that way and so i think that's my number one advice find your voice. And number two is just if you want it, you just need to get out there. And rejection is part of it. People have different tastes. It doesn't matter if your art is amazing or whatever, or even if it's horrible, there's going to be somebody that loves it. You know, don't be so caught up in people's opinions. Just do what feels right for you and and run with it. And if you want it, just be determined and just go get it and don't take no for an answer. (laughs) So there you have it, a quick peek into the world of murals, those great large scale artworks that really put their stamp on a city. So if you're interested in creating murals or a career in art and design, know that employers are always on the hunt for the next generation of talented and of course skilled creative professionals. And at Academy of Art University, you will get those work ready skills that employers want. You can study on site in downtown San Francisco or anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request info about our 40-plus areas of study in art and design, including game development, fine art, even murals, visit our website at academyart.edu slash creativemind. I'm Bobby Brill. Thanks for listening.